Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. In this sermon, we look at what it really means to be that lowercase Catholic church. And what does it mean to be the church? What is the purpose? What is the goal? How do we all function together? You're listening to One Holy Catholic Church by guest minister Dr. Laura Smith. It's very nice to be back with you here in LaGrave. I love Reformation Day, and I especially love Reformation Day when we get to sing A Mighty Fortress the way we just sang A Mighty Fortress with that fantastic organ, and when we're being all ecumenically Reformation, like by singing Charles Wesley, too. Wow. I love Reformation Day, but I often get pushback about my love for Reformation Day. I have people who will say to me, how can you make a big celebration out of a big schism? What's wrong with you? I'm a member of a group called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. It's a wonderful group. Um, It was founded by uh, Newhouse, Richard John Newhouse and Charles Colson, a long time ago getting evangelical Protestants and conservative Catholics to cooperate on lots of things. And a few years ago, when we were having a big anniversary of the Reformation, there was a move within ECT to issue a lament for the Reformation. And I said, well, I can't sign that. I'm quite happy about the Reformation. I'm not lamenting the Reformation. And a few of the other Protestants then grudgingly admitted They were sort of happy about the Reformation, too. So we didn't do that. We didn't lament. But I always feel that I have to justify this, that I have to justify the fact that I'm a Protestant. And somehow there's this idea, even among Protestants, that, no, we're not going to go back and join the Catholic Church, but we should feel kind of guilty about it. We should feel kind of sad. Now, I think that's not quite the right way to think this through. And so that's something I want to talk about tonight. We're going to look at the book of Ephesians to help us, a fairly long passage from Ephesians, chapter 2 into chapter 3. And we're going to think about those three words from the Apostles' Creed, one holy Catholic church, one holy Catholic. We're going to talk about them in a different order. We're going to go one Catholic holy, but we're going to look at those three words. So let us together hear the word of God from Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose 
was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together, and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are your glory. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and taken two groups of people who for generations were divided and brought them together. More than that, Paul is saying that the whole point of the coming of Jesus is to create a united church, a church that is one body. You might perhaps have been under the impression that the point of Jesus coming was to save you from your sin. That was just a step along the way. The point is to create this body, bringing together people long separated by hostility and sin. And fusing them together into one new humanity by the Holy Spirit's work uniting all of us 
to Jesus, whose new humanity then pours into us. It's because we are each of us united to Jesus and to his new way of being human that we all become one new humanity. He's the uniting power and the Holy Spirit unites us to him. So the Spirit and the Son together craft us into a new humanity. That's what we're all about. And it all starts with the end of hostility. Now, I do think that for the most part, this is the biggest barrier that we've seen historically to a united church. Active hostility. The same kind of hostility we see in lots of areas of our lives where we create divisions that don't need to be there. Here's my little group. There's your little group. My little group doesn't like your little group. I'm not really into this, but I understand there was a big football game yesterday with people in this little group and people in that little group. And the fact that two fine Michigan educational institutions have to create rivalry is just kind of a sign of this impulse we have to create hostility between groups that really don't need to be hostile with each other. I have to say that that one of the things I love the most about my students, and this is something I think has, has grown even stronger over the years I've been teaching, and I'm in year 22, I think, um, is that I have never once, never in my 20-plus years of teaching at Calvin, heard a student say, only my church is the true church. This generation just doesn't say stuff like that. They don't do that. I mean, when I was a kid, we still made jokes about how if a Christian Reformed person married an RCA person, they were marrying out of the covenant, And at least we thought it was funny. My parents grew up with a generation that didn't think that was funny, who took that pretty seriously. This is incomprehensible to my students. And there's a dark side to that, the dark side where they have trouble saying no to things, they have trouble issuing judgment. But the bright, good, beautiful side is they don't want that wall of hostility there at all. And they are so grateful to help break it down. It seems to me that with the wall of hostility broken down, if we can exist as Christians of many different sorts without being hostile to each other, then then what exactly still needs to happen for the church to be one? What sort of oneness do we imagine when we imagine the oneness of the church? Some people still imagine some kind of institutional unity, which I just find baffling, to be quite honest. I I find it hard to see why we would assume that every Christian church in the history of the world would have the same polity, the same form of government, that they'd all elect leaders in the same way, that they'd all understand the sacrament of communion in exactly the same way, that there would be no cultural translation of any church practices. Nothing else about the gospel works that way. The thing about the Christian gospel that's so fantastically different 
from most religions is that it is always, always, always being translated. This book, with the words of Jesus in it, they're a translation. He didn't speak Greek. So the very words of Jesus that we have are already a translation. And everywhere the gospel has gone through the whole history of Christianity, the Bible has been translated. That doesn't happen with all religious traditions. In Islam, you want to convert into Islam, you better learn some Arabic. You're going to become Jewish, you have to learn at least enough Hebrew to stand up there for your bar or bat mitzvah. We don't do that. We translate. We have whole ministries that are only about translating. But we don't just translate text, we translate culturally, culturally. So the gospel is received into cultures. And every culture that has ever been touched by the gospel has had to change in response. Because every culture in the world is fallen and broken and a mess. So it's not as if every culture just gets to say, oh, well, this is how, the way we do it. No, every single culture is challenged and changed and Every single group of people has something that they want to hold on to that Jesus says no, no, no to. But the diversity of the church in all of these different ways of being has been part of the design that we see from the very beginning when when we see that what is the incarnation but the translation of God's own nature into human form. Translation is what our unity is based on. It's what Jesus is doing in knitting us together, passing a new kind of humanity to us, transforming us, remaking us through our union with him. So this this union, this breaking down of hostility, cannot mean some sort of institutional union. I think in the early days of the ecumenical movement in the early 20th century, there was a little bit of a dream about that. Maybe all the churches can just join together and we can all be one. But it didn't take very long for the ecumenical movement to get past that and to say, no, what we actually need to do is be ourselves. So if the Reformed and the Methodists are having an ecumenical dialogue The goal is not to become some kind of mushy thing that's a little bit of each. The goal is for the Reformed people really to articulate the Reformed view, and the Methodists really articulate the Methodist view, and they listen to each other, and they think about it, and they say, well, there is a little value in what you say there. Perhaps we could move a little bit. You know, Maybe we could take a gift from you. But there's no no desire to mush ourselves together. And in fact, in this metaphor of the two humans becoming one human, that that metaphor is not pushed that far. Because clearly, Paul is saying, the Gentiles remain Gentiles, and the Jews remain Jews. The whole point of the breaking down of the wall of hostility is that the Gentiles get to remain Gentiles. They're not circumcised. They don't take on the burden of the law. They they come in by a somewhat different path. And yet, in the early church, Jewish Christians continued to be Jewish. They didn't give up their Judaism. They didn't renounce their Judaism. Paul certainly never does. Paul is a Jew 
and a Christian, and the Gentiles are Gentiles and Christians. And he says, those things can remain like that. You can remain a Gentile, I can remain a Jew, and we can somehow be one. So this is not a unity of homogenization, and it's not a, a unity, I don't think, of institution. This is far too early for Paul to be thinking about institutions and structures like that. Think about what it means for your extended family to be one. Some of you may be part of really big families where the family reunion that you have every summer requires, you know, renting out a whole park or something because you take up so much space. You're one family, but you don't all live together. Some of you look at each other and laugh at at each other's choices about how you live and things that you do. So you're one, and yet you are distinctly yourself. And now sometimes that, that is not a good thing in families. Families are sinful, like all other human organizations, and sometimes it becomes nasty and mean, and there are dividing walls of hostility. But when there's love, love doesn't mean homogenization, and it doesn't mean you all have to sell your houses and move into one great big house in order to really be one. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that you're all united to the same source. And most families that have a family reunion have a starting point, right? Some pair from whom you are all descended. And that's your source. And that's where your unity is. And our unity is in Christ. If you are united to him and I am united to him, I am united to you. We are one body. We are one church, whether we say so or not. C.S. Lewis says this somewhere, and I've, I've certainly found it to be true, that the unity of the church is most obvious when people who are at the heart of each tradition, like the, the really, really committed Christian Reformed person, sits down with the really, really committed Methodist and the really, really committed Catholic and the really committed Eastern Orthodox person and find they have so much in common, much more often than with the sort of nominal fringe members of their denominations. Because these are people who are united to Christ. And when you meet with people like that, and I'm sure many of you have had this experience, that great ecumenical experience of being somewhere and and meeting someone and saying, oh, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian too. And in your conversation, maybe you're in a different country, maybe you're not even really speaking the same language very well, maybe there are all sorts of barriers, but you're a Christian, and I am too. And we are part of the same family. And that's not just sentimental nonsense. That's real. And in that moment, you know it is. You know there is real oneness in the church. Jesus has come to do this, to make us one. And that's the the eschatological goal toward which we're moving, the unity of the body in the life to come, in the new creation. Now, just as with families, you know, I trust that you're all aware of the fact that there's no marriage in heaven, right? So your family ties do not survive into the new creation. Sorry. I'm not actually all that sorry. Sorry. Um, As a single person, this is one of the great joys of my life is breaking this news to married people. But... (laughs) 
Yeah, let goods and kindred go, people. Let it go. Um, but you are still brothers and sisters with each other, right? You're still brothers and sisters for all of, of eternity. So your marriage should have the relationship of brother and sister in Christ built into it because that's the relationship that's going to last. But now, we all know this. No marriage in heaven. That doesn't mean we stop having marriages now. It doesn't mean you stop having families now. This is the transitional structure that we have as finite beings to practice loving other people the way we're going to have to love a lot more people in the new creation. So the family is an accommodation to us. Local congregations are an accommodation to us. Specific denominations are accommodations to us. We are simply not big enough as individual people to have any meaningful way of saying, I am part of all the Christians in the whole world, even just the ones alive right now at this moment. That's, that's such an enormous, diverse, faceless group. I mean, I can say lots of happy things about it, and none of it means anything because it's so big. I can't really be in relationship with that group. What I can do is be in relationship with a group this size, with a congregation. And then maybe I can start to have a relationship with a denomination if it's not too enormous. That's part of why we tend to have geographic limits to our denominations, just because we're small people and we, you know, there's a limit to how many relationships we can have. And that's not the goal. The goal is for all of that to be gone. But those can be, when they're not agents of hostility, those can be mediating relationships that train us in ever-expanding circles of oneness, ever-expanding circles of enjoying this oneness of the body. Now, as Paul moves into chapter 3, he starts to talk about diversity or Catholicity. Catholicity. We are one church, but we are also a Catholic church, small c. And the Roman Catholic Church does not own that word any more than the Christian Reformed Church owns the word Reformed. There are lots of Reformed people in the world who are not members of that denomination. The word Catholic just means including everything. If you have Catholic taste in literature, you'll read absolutely anything. And if you have a Catholic palate, you'll eat absolutely anything. And the Catholicity of the church means it, it takes in the great diversity of humanity. God made us to be diverse to be different. God placed into the creation all the seeds of the, the millions and millions and millions of ways that human beings are in the world. What we look like, what we're gifted to do, how we organize ourselves, all of that fruitfulness, it's part of God's design. In chapter 3, verse 10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. The translation I usually use says the rich variety of the wisdom of God. The rich variety of the wisdom of God. And actually, rich variety is stuck right between the word for church and the word for wisdom. And they're both 
feminine singular words, and it could modify either direction. And since Paul is not a stupid man, but a very smart one, and the Holy Spirit was helping him here, I think it's meant to modify both. The rich variety of the church reflects the rich variety of God's wisdom, God's God's manifold wisdom, that's a nice word too, that a, a way of thinking about his wisdom being so multivalent, so expressive, so enormous, that it takes all the kinds of Christians who have ever been and ever will be anywhere in the world all together to begin to show something of what he's planning and designing for the future. All of that is necessary to express the fullness of his wisdom. And that's what's being knit together into one church. So the diversity of the church is not a problem to be solved. It's a value-added thing. Catholicity is something we confess as a, a very good thing about the church. One holy Catholic church. We are grateful that not every church is the same. We are grateful that there are churches using every kind of music in the world to praise God today. Because if that weren't true, then there would be some parts of of the musical world that weren't being brought in to glorify him, and that would be wrong. All of it has to be brought to glorify God. All kinds of people have to be brought to glorify God. Every culture, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language, all of it has to be brought together to glorify God, to reflect his manifold wisdom. Now, some of you may know that in the Nicene Creed, we have four marks instead of three of the church. Apostles' Creed says one holy Catholic, but the Nicene Creed says one holy Catholic and apostolic. And I think apostolic fits here too, because this is a a Catholicity, a diversity that is going out, going out and proclaiming the gospel to every corner, saying to to no one, oh, well, we don't need you, thanks. You would not add anything to our little community. No, we never say that to any human being made in God's image. We say, you too have a place at this table. You too have a gift that you should be bringing in. And this tradition and that tradition, each tradition has its own gift, its own charism. Catholics like to use the word charism for gifts. And they'll talk about the different orders, like the Franciscan charism, the Benedictine charism, that all come together to enrich the church. I used to be the dean for reformed identity at Calvin, and I would tell my Catholic friends, I'm the dean of the reformed charism, and then they knew what I was doing. And I thought that was a good way to think about it, because when you think of your tradition as having a gift that you bring to the table, that affirms both multiplicity and Catholicity and oneness at the same time. The reason we are different is to enrich the whole. And then we are also to be holy. Holy. Paul really talks about that briefly at the end of chapter 3, but he goes into it more in chapters 4 and 5. At the beginning of chapter 4, he recapitulates the idea of oneness. He says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's one of the most ringing statements of the unity of the church that there can be. And with the exception of baptism, those are mostly things that all Christians agree on. We do seem to have managed to disagree about baptism, which is an unfortunate thing when you read this verse. But one hope, one Lord, one faith, one God and Father of us all. But immediately he goes to Catholicity. But you have all sorts of gifts. You are all gifted in different ways. Uh, Jesus is uh, coming back to give gifts to the apostles, to prophets, to evangelists, to uh, pastors and teachers. So oneness, multiplicity. And then he starts talking about how we have to live. I tell you this and insist on it. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And he begins to talk about all the different sins that need to be conquered within this community. Oneness, Catholicity, this is not a pass then on holiness of life. This community is supposed to be a place where you are supported in the pursuit of holiness of life. Now, earlier in the service, we read all that wonderful teaching about how I don't do this. It's not because I'm so holy. It's the holiness of Jesus. But for that holiness of Jesus to be pouring into me, I have to be united with him. I have to be submitting to him. I have to be bowing to him. And the way we do that in the church is we submit to one another. We submit to discipline. We submit to correction. It's not that all of us do things perfectly once we become good Christians. We most definitely don't. But when you take a vow to join a church, you promise to submit to the discipline of that church. Because that's one of the things we do together, is we notice and we call each other to holiness of life. Now, if this is a good church, and I think it is, that discipline is probably, most of the time, administered in a sort of proactive, gentle way. I think sometimes you hear the word discipline and you think about that teenage girl trotted up to the front to be humiliated because she's pregnant. Nobody else who was part of this is in any way blamed. And, and that gave discipline a bad name. When at some point in the past, that's how discipline was enacted. I doubt it actually was quite as bad as that, but that's the story we tell ourselves. That's the stereotype we have of some over-discipline focus in the past. But the best discipline isn't like that at all. The best discipline is you're walking to your car after a Bible study or a prayer group, and someone walking next to you says, hey, you know, in the meeting tonight, you were making some kind of I mean, I know you were joking, but the way you were joking about your husband or your wife, it was kind of angry. Something going on? Is there a problem? Can I pray for you? Is there something I could do? That someone intervenes before, before the marriage falls apart. That someone intervenes before you fall into some sort of addiction or before you wander away because you're just kind of bored with church. That people are paying attention to you and 
meddling in your life and noticing when you go astray and pulling you gently back. Discipline ought to be that sort of kind of constant preventive calling each other to account in love and in grace. But boy, is that countercultural for us. So if every culture has something that has to be corrected by Jesus, perhaps this is something that American culture has to have corrected because we tend to say, who do you think you are? Talking to me about my marriage, talking to me about my money, talking to me about my temper, talking to me about myself. I will take, you know, my own time thinking these things over. It's not your business. We are very reluctant to acknowledge that anyone has the right to meddle in our lives. And that's why all over the United States today, there are denominations that have very nice policies about holiness of life for their clergy, for their officers, for their members, none of which are being enforced because Americans have a hard time enforcing discipline on each other. We just don't like to do it. So this is something that needs to be corrected. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks to the Corinthians about this man, I'm sure you remember, who's sleeping with his father's wife. and It's horrible. He says, even the pagans know better than to say this is good. You have to discipline this man. You have to cast him out. You have to excommunicate him and hope that you can restore him. So it's not... It's not just punishment for the sake of punishment, but there are things that may not be tolerated. And then he says, now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't associate with immoral people out in the world. The world's full of immoral people, and you've got to associate with them. But in the church, we have a different standard. In the church, we hold each other to a higher standard than we do out there. I think we often do it the other way around. We say, I don't want to be with all those people out in the world. They're so sinful. But, oh, my friend, in, well, you know, he's just weak. He's just weak, you know. And we give each other a pass because we love each other and we know each other and we're friends. And after all, we're all a lot alike each other, right? So if I don't give you a pass, you're not going to give me a pass. And oh. so, so we put all of our judgment externally. And Paul says, do it the other way around. Why are you worrying about those people? That's not for you to judge. What's going on in here? What's going on right here? That's where you are supposed to be holding people accountable. You are supposed to be enforcing some sort of discipline. You're supposed to be helping each other to become holy. Holiness of life. Now notice what we have here. We have three things that reinforce each other. Oneness and Catholicity and holiness. And if any one of them falls apart, the whole church falls apart. If there's no unity, all that diversity is not a good thing at all. It's just a mess. It's not pulled together into any kind of pattern. It's just random. Multiplicity for the sake of multiplicity. That's not what God's about. The diversity we affirm is the kind of diversity that reflects God's goodness and grace and creativity and and all that God has built into the creation. It's not just an anything-goes kind of multiplicity. So without unity, multiplicity doesn't make sense. Without unity, we can't help each other to be holy. We're each on our own, and that would be terrible. We would all be in big trouble. Without Catholicity, all that unity can become an oppressive force. 
I know my grandparents immigrated to the United States to escape a state church, which was imposing a high level of unity on all the Christians in their country. And many of you have ancestors who came to the United States for just that reason. Too much unity, no space for diversity, that can be chilling. And when there's no space for diversity, pretty soon difference and a lack of holiness get collapsed into each other. And we start saying, anyone who's not just like me isn't really holy. Well, that's not the standard of holiness. The standard of holiness is being like Jesus. Not like me, not like you. But without holiness... The fact that you have this lovely, united group of diverse people does not yet reflect anything about the nature of God because he is holy. And the whole point of creating this oneness, the whole point of creating this church, Paul says, is that the rich variety of God's wisdom may be on display. It is the creation of a church that shows God's glory into the world. That's why Jesus came to remake humanity by making a church. And if if we aren't worried enough or committed enough to work toward holiness together in our little communities, then in what sense are we that church? The church is defined by the Holy Spirit's presence uniting us to Jesus, whose holiness then pours into us because we're so united to him. And if there is no holiness on display, then we have to ask ourselves, is that connection still there? And when you think perhaps not, well, that's when churches break apart. Some of you know that In 2012, I was part of starting a new denomination. And if I get pushback for my love of Reformation Day, I get a lot more pushback for that. You you did what, people say? You thought there weren't enough? Not enough denominations in the world? You thought it was a good idea to start a new one? Well, yeah, actually, we did. And no, there were not enough. There were not enough. Almost everyone in my denomination left the Presbyterian Church USA for a very simple reason. We were orthodox, confessional people. We did not think that same-sex marriage was real marriage, according to God. But we were also absolutely committed to the equal partnership of men and women in every office. And no, there was no church to go to that said those three things. I'm sorry, I know the CRC does ordain women, but you do this kind of I mean, I say this as a woman ordained in the CRC. It's kind of a play ordination that some churches recognize and some churches don't. And that's ordination is the act of a denomination, so local option is kind of an illogical thing. I'm sorry. If that offends you, we can talk about it later. But but we we felt a real need to have a, a new denomination. And I had all these male colleagues who had for years waited for a denomination that that would accept their female colleagues too, who had refused to leave until there was a place we could all go to together. And finally, we created that place that we could all go to together. My denomination has been one of the great joys of my life. It's called ECO, a covenant order of evangelical Presbyterians. I love my church. And it's not perfect, and it frustrates me, and we fight about things. And sure, we're like any other denomination. But we started fresh. Now, here's how I've come to think about it. If you know anything about church planting, 
you know that a new church plant can reach people that an established church can never reach. There, there are people who have never heard the gospel, but who may not be quick to walk in the doors of an established church. But they'll come into maybe a coffee shop or some other place that's a church plant that's kind of meeting them part way. This is part of the church growth movement. Well, I think the same is true of denominations. Planting a new denomination equips you to reach people you wouldn't have reached before in the old in the old country, as we talk about it, when we talk about our former home. In the old country, we had a structure of evangelism that wasn't working very well, and now we're planting churches all over the country. A new church denomination does not seem to me to be violating any kind of unity within the church because the, the unity of the church is not based on having one big institution. It's, in fact, an affirmation that there are lots and lots of ways to be church. And if the only way you can avoid being hostile to each other is not to live in the same house, sometimes a little division is a good thing. Just like, you know, I loved my mother, but I very, very young realized I should not live in the same house with her as an adult. I needed to go move to another home. And that's how our, our relationship was saved. And that can be how church relationships get saved, too. The unity of the church, the oneness of the church, is a oneness that persists when we are united to Jesus with all the gifts he's given to us on full display and with all the holiness of Jesus flowing out through us and changing our lives. That's what it is to be one holy and Catholic. Let's pray together, shall we? Gracious God, you know that every church that has ever been has fallen short of this dream, of this ideal. We cannot do this on our own. And even with your constant help, we are constantly making a mess of it. But we ask you to bless us, to keep us, to sustain us, to encourage us. Send us other Christians who can call us to account. Give us courage to say the words of correction we must say to others. May we overcome our natural fear of being mean or being judgmental to speak the truth and love to each other. May this weakness that is in our culture, this weakness of relativism and the fear of judgment, may that be overcome in this community. May we be holy people. May the gifts that you have given to us here all be deployed for your glory. And may that be done in such a way that more and more people long to be here and long to be part of your church, deploying their gifts in their variety of ways. And in all of that, may we be one. As you and your Father are one, we pray, Lord Jesus, to you in the power of the Spirit, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.